Hi, my name is Barbara Neves-Alves. I'm a designer, researcher, and tutor. My background's in communication design. My research interest has been very much around communication, communication surrounding public space and engaging with the political dimensions of different types of encounters that can occur in public space. As a tutor, I'm responsible for teaching theory to fine arts students at the Ritfel Academy in Amsterdam, and I'm also responsible for the research seminar and thesis supervision at the Masters in Situated Design at St. Joost in Den Bosch. Hello, and welcome to Hold the Space, a podcast about the intersection between creative practice and teaching. My name is Oli Palmer. In each episode of this podcast, I bring you a recorded conversation between myself and another creative practitioner who also teaches. This week's episode is a little late, and I apologize. You can probably hear from my voice that I've been a bit ill, and that has caused a logjam in the one-person podcast production factory here. But... I'm really excited about introducing my guest, Barbara Neves-Alves. Barbara was, for four years, a colleague of mine at the Master Institute of Visual Cultures in St. Hugh's School of Art and Design, where I teach. During that time, she was responsible for thesis supervision for Situated Design Master's students. I really enjoyed working with her for all of that time, despite the fact that about half of it coincided with the global pandemic and all of the weirdness that that brought to teaching and also creative practice. As you will hear, Barbara has a really interesting way of approaching theory and practice, weaving them both into each other, embracing knotty issues, messiness and miscommunication. Barbara is a practitioner who enjoys the moments of recalibration that come with finding and refinding one's place in the world, and she encourages students to do the same. Unfortunately, due to decisions made at a much higher level than either of us, Barbara no longer works in our department, and she's very much missed by our whole team. She does continue to teach at the Rietveld Academy. This interview was recorded way back in November 2021, when Barbara and I still worked together, and it was also the first in-person interview in this series. So my apologies for the occasional sound hiccup as I was testing using multiple microphones in the same room for the first time. In this conversation, we talk about quite a few things, starting with an article she wrote about her experiences at Occupy London years ago. There's an odd echo of my conversation with Nelly Ben-Hayun from the last episode. We also talk about her practice, her teaching techniques, the way that she balances the different modes of practice and the demands that are put upon you by them, and what she does if she's stuck in a creative rut. As ever, there is a full transcript of this episode available, and the show notes have links to many of the things we've talked about. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Barbara Neves Alves. Barbara, I'm so grateful for you coming along today. <laughs> Very and happy to be here. Barbara and I have been working together for two and a half years maybe nearly three years nearly now. three years huh? yeah and what's nice about our working relationship is that the department went through a lot of changes when we both started working together and we've both been there to see a lot of that stuff happen but i don't know a huge amount of, about your work outside of the academy that we're part of so i really want to dig a little deeper into that 
and find out about the relationship that you have with theory and practice, teaching and um, and everything else. I want to start maybe with the, the simplest question, which is probably also the hardest question, mm. which is... Quite usually. <laughs> yeah. How do you describe your practice? And yeah. does it change according to the audience you're talking to? That's a really hard question for me because sometimes I think that's what my practice is actually about, finding out what my practice is. <laughs> and it has been so for a while. I, I started going through a really traditional, what was a communication design course in the 90s. And my expectation in entering the course was all built around the idea of uh, communication. And basically what I actually had to learn was graphic design in a commercial sense. So, you know, just right. imagine a client and work for a client and sometimes there was a bit more freedom, but that was it. And there was a, a very strong frustration about, on the one hand, like, yes, I love shapes, I love forms, I love thinking in this way, but then where's the content, where's the communication, mm. where's the explorative side of this? I, I found that in new technologies, in an Erasmus exchange for one year in Barcelona, where I had Claudia Gianetti as teacher, and she kind of turned my world upside down, you know, getting to know people such as Edward Kack or Marcelli and Tunis, and, and, and I fell completely in love with net art and with the possibilities it brought to communication and also the possibilities in working in between the real and the digital environment that was totally new for me. I remember trying to set up um, an email for the first time at that time. So it was like in 1994, 95, so it was quite a while ago. And so this brought me to think, okay, my practice is not going to be a graphic designer as I was studying, but I'm going to work in this digital environment and led me to work after studying at a television station at the media department of an ad a big advertising company, very unhappy with the commercial setting of it all, and then later at the University of Engineering. So I thought, okay, I'm really going into this more technical and programming, but that also wasn't me. And I became really fascinated with the possibilities of the um, digital environment to deal with language and with complex uh, layers of information. And that led me to come to the Netherlands to study type and media that I thought was really focused on the media part of the title and description of the course, but turned out to be a master's in type design. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and that was also... I think I adapted to that and it was really interesting to deal with looking at language from that perspective. Mm. And for one year I was a type designer and it gave me an experience that shaped how I think. And so that's another practice that I went through, another way of engaging mm. with my passion. And by then I was really kind of more sure of the idea that language was important to me and words were important to me and meanings were important to me and how people understood things were really important to me. And that was like a common thread from an interest in communication to net art to these more complex digital environments. But I was still also kind of um, searching after that. Coming back to Portugal, I was invited to teach I was looking for work, looking what I wanted to do next, and a friend asked me, do you want to teach multimedia design? You have one afternoon to decide. 
And in that afternoon, I decided, yes, okay, I'm going to try teaching while I'm thinking about my next project. And that's um, how an, a new practice developed, that of teaching, that was quite hard to adapt to and, and difficult because it asked something that was new to me in engaging, thinking about how, uh, what I was doing and that I fell in love with and that I've continued doing ever since. And teaching gave me the time to, to continue to think about design and how I wanted to shape my practice. And I started to follow courses, postgraduate courses in cultural studies, um, master course in sociology. So just kind of trying to find out there's something I'm interested in. I feel I need to know more about this. How does it connect to design? I have no clue. And during this process, I came to know about theatre of the oppressed, and I thought, oh, what they're doing, this idea of interactive theatre within a community is really very close to what I'm actually interested in. So how could design play a part there? So basically, I'm telling a very long story, just to, to, to show a bit how my practice has been shaped from, I'm going to go a bit faster now, but from this experience with theatre came an experience with community projects, participatory projects, and from that experience uh, a, a lot of questions derived that really kind of paralysed me. I didn't know how to deal with the ethical conditions, questions that were coming from my practice, and that led me to a PhD. And where I, and I'm mentioning the PhD because I encountered a practice that I came to love, that's writing. I, I felt for many years that I didn't have a practice because I kept interrupting whatever I was doing. But now looking back, I see that I was always looking for something. And since I finished my PhD, I'm actually enjoying not knowing and trying things out and exploring how the questions and what I'm interested in can be explored in different ways based on the experiences that I have and the books I read and you know, yeah, what surrounds me. <laughs> I guess my practice is ongoing. It's playing with my curiosities. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so common for people to think that their, their practice is in, in some way illegitimate because it doesn't fit into a box that it's sort of you're not one thing you're not another thing you've tried a bit of this and you've tried a bit of that and it, it takes a long time to realize that that is what you're doing yeah it's true. each time you're relearning something else and it's yeah. it's not just abandoning something else it's building on what you already have to take you yeah. somewhere else i remember the first day that i met you actually in a meeting and I was a bit worried because we were having a meeting about setting up the whole structure of the masters and I'm always a bit unsure, like how mm. do I fit this structure and this design course and what's expected from a practice mm. <laughs> of a designer within an institution also. And I remember someone I was asking something about methodologies and you were giving such an open answer about oh, but design, artistic research is also design and, and the these separation between fields don't make sense. And I felt so liberated by the idea that, okay, there's a space for exploration and it can take many forms and shapes and processes. So yeah. that's something that I really enjoyed in yeah, meeting you. <laughs> I had the same experience also within my PhD that I, 
I just didn't feel comfortable with uh, a chapter about methods and this discomfort was stubborn, a stubborn discomfort. Like it was also something I chose and I wasn't quite aware of why until I encountered the book Inventive Methods edited by Celia Lurie and Nina Wakeford. I guess their book was important for me as a researcher, this idea that the methods shape <laughs> the environment. They, they, they are a device that also unsettles the place that you're studying and, and that a method is something that can be invented also mm-hmm. within a process and within a question and can be something that's open and positioned and exploratory and that was really important for me. It opens a much more speculative way of looking at a, a method and I guess I draw on that to, mm. to talk with students. It doesn't mean that it becomes easier somehow, it's even more complicated I guess because you have to deal with the implications and the, the, I think sometimes the real questions around the project that students sometimes are avoiding or hiding behind this is how I'm going to do something and then I know. I think it's so easy to not have to go through the process of justification if you're using somebody else's method and that's like certainly my experience my first degree was in product design and we were taught the product design method of the school that we were in and you follow that method unquestioningly you know, this is the way it's done. There's a flowchart that helps you and you can identify exactly which stage you're at. And actually, it uh, the whole time I went through that, I mean, I completely understand it for the purposes of an industrial design project where you have a specific client and you're trying to do something specific. But anytime you're trying to deal with some sort of like sensitivity within the world and anything that doesn't necessarily fit into a box that transgresses the boundaries of an academic discipline or anything else. It's so hard to to say, well, this is a method you should definitely use. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard about artistic or design-based research anyway, that mm-hmm. alongside the thing that you're studying, whatever your subject is, you also have to design the methods of it. And those methods are so much less clear than they would be if we were trying to find something that had sort of a Boolean or statistical answer, like a yes-no or a (laughs) 5.3%. No, what what concerns me is also that it shapes the questions that Mm. you're asking. And so in that way, it it can really limit a project. And I guess that resonates a lot in my own work, in my own curiosities. My research was very much questioning how this idea that the discursive is what you read in an exchange. And so if you ask a question and the answer is no, then it's no. But what if you ask a question, and of course I'm talking now with a microphone, so I have to describe, but you say no when you shrug your shoulders, or you say no when you stamp your feet, or you turn your face around, or you become really, really red. So what about all these other dimensions of communication that can be performed, but also material? How are they taken, they are often not taken into account and actually they produce miscommunication uh, and misunderstandings that are really interesting and could be opening questions that are sometimes hidden unless you take care to notice them. So this is something that's really interesting for me 
and that I think is tied very much to this idea of, okay, then how do I set up a question? How do I study an environment? How do I ask others to participate in my research or help me think about something? How do I set up that conversation, that exchange? Because in learning about something, we often exchange with materials, with people, with something. So, mm. yeah, I think it's really important in that sense. <laughs> I was reading one of your articles recently about Occupy and the, the way that communication happened specifically within the encampment at St. Paul's in London. I'd also come across um, in 2006, I think it was, I was in Iceland and I met lots of environmental protesters and attended a few meetings where there were kind of proto versions of this method of communication. You'll probably describe it far better than I would, but hand-waving signals that signify either approval or disapproval. It's a lot easier to signal approval than it is to signal disapproval, which I sort of realized as I was reading your article. One of the meetings I went to went on for absolutely hours and got nowhere and was just kind of a farcical set of miscommunications that everything that happened entered these elliptical stages and went round and round and round and round. And I mean, we both work in academia where this kind of thing (laughs) also (laughs) frequently (laughs) happens. But... I love the way that you've managed to take these moments, like quite autobiographic moments, and turn them into an artistic practice and a research-based practice that comes back to something that is, I don't want to say universal truth, but it's something that I think is very easy to identify with. Um, So yeah, I wonder if you could that's a terrible question, I realize, because that's not... <laughs> that's just, I've done the classic thing of, of... I've got more of a comment than a question. That's fine. Um, I do that often. <laughs> I guess what I was trying to do, writing about Occupy, there's Occupy in the framework of my thesis and thinking about miscommunication, and I'm going to leave that for after mm-hmm. and talk about the moment and why I wrote about it. I guess there was this need to understand this happened several times in my life in how feeling very much involved in a political movement or political idea how in participating in the groups or in the in the in the organizations that were working or tending to that issue or organizing a stand against or for something Uh, I felt disengaged. I felt like I want to go away. I don't even want to participate or communicate. And that happened to me while I was, you know, working on my PhD while at St. Paul's. I was really believing in Occupy. I'm going to open brackets here. I was talking about Occupy in 2015 at the Willem de Koning Academy and then realized that the students, no one knew what I was talking about. It's also so interesting that for me it still seems so part of history, of, of, of contemporary history, things that are happening now and it's been a decade now and people yeah. actually don't know what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. When I was following the Occupy movement in New York and in the US and I was really like anxious online and I was really anxious for this to to happen in London, in the UK. I really wanted to be part, so I was really enthusiastic when I set out to occupy St. Paul's. After a whole day of participating in the occupation of St. Paul's, I left feeling scared because there was a, really a kind of a 
friction uh, with the police and it was really intimidating in the UK. <laughs> a display of strength that was significant. But I've left. I wasn't invested enough to actually stay. <laughs> and, and I wasn't invested enough to then return and be part of occupation. And I just kept wondering why, what happened, you know, what, what happened to me, what happened during the day that, that provoked this, that made me not feel part of the movement. It was really strange for me. How is it that when I'm looking at a movement online, <laughs> I really feel part of it, but then when I'm actually, you know, in the space looking to occupy, I feel disconnected. And that brought me to look at how communication was shaped in both this, the online environment and in space and how it was organized and what was the space for participation. And actually, communication was organized during Occupy in a way to project a movement, to be part of the movement that I was following online, to make a stance. And in that way, it was all about following a set of performers that were seemingly talking about that moment and that space, but also pre-organized and pre-established and pre-designed in a way that took away <laughs> the space for for us actually to participate really mm. in what was happening. I was just playing a part. I, I, yes. I, I, that's my feeling during the day. And I realized, okay, so if I was feeling like that, what were other people feeling there? If we look at the crowd at Occupy, it was really emotional. Like we were all together, you know, hands in the air, participating in this general assembly, repeating what was being said with the human microphone, you know, performing what the person that's speaking is saying. But then what does that actually do to... We're listening in a very powerful way, but then are we really listening and how are we responding to what we're listening to? It also made me think how because we were part of that movement and that set of designed communication devices, we weren't actually talking about the space because that part was also kind of pre-programmed. And, and that's my question. If we actually had to, to talk about the practical questions of occupation, of being there, wouldn't I be more invested? Wouldn't, it would be probably messier and perhaps less effective, but maybe it would also open up discussions that were more political and about the being there then. And it also made me think about the other people that were there next to me and that I actually didn't get to know and that each one of them was understanding what it was to be there in a different way and how while we were signaling our hands into the air, there was other parts of us being there together and communicating with each other and what was behind that. It was opening a space for something beyond <laughs> what we design as a device mm. that I find really interesting and there's something political about very, very much not political uh, design that, that's like shaping political spaces in a very, very effective, strong way. <laughs> Effective, strong way is perhaps the wrong word. Shaping political spaces and different opportunities for dialogue. And that was really interesting for me. Reading your description of attending Occupy and the numerous instances of miscommunication it did and didn't allow, 
and kind of when I did my masters, I got really into cybernetics. And one of my favorite books was Gordon Pask's Conversation Theory, and his analysis of communication and conversation specifically boils down to a formula of any conversation is about reaching a mutual set of definitions. The question that he posed was, how can any two sentient organisms come to a definition that works together? So if I picture a dog and you picture a dog, we're picturing different dogs, but how do we define that these things are dogs? And so a conversation is a set of refining of definitions to a point where they can be mutually understood. But the entire framing of Occupy I've seen and read about through your work is that it really reduces the set of definitions that can be reached because the conversation is framed in such a way that it limits such a high degree of agency. I think engaging with your example, what I became curious about in relation to design was what if we stopped worrying about a common definition of a dog. And, and stop trying to arrive at common definitions or think about what common definitions might be, but actually see what's different and how that's really interesting and perhaps more provocative of, of new ideas and new mm. possibilities to try rather than always thinking that we have to arrive at a consensus or to arrive at a a common definition, except the fact that a common definition is a norm, it's something that's always going to exclude (laughs) Mm. something, (laughs) some matter, some perspective, some voice. And, and, And so perhaps things, but then how to find that, you know, that was what I was kind of busy with. And I think perhaps things that we take for granted, dimensions of being together that we just are not used to notice, then we can just take time to notice them. And maybe that doesn't give us any answer, but just give it some time and perhaps some questions. Or And I'm, I'm simplifying, of course, because there was a whole conceptual theoretical framework around this. But that's the basic idea. So that was what I was really interested in. And then if we think in that way, what, what modes of encounter can take place? I think mm-hmm. interesting ones, at least with new questions for for designers, especially those working with complex societal issues. So keeping things complicated somehow, Mm. being okay with that. I referred to it in my thesis as a sense of disquietude. That comes from Fernando Pessoa, the Portuguese poet. But it's a word that I embrace very fondly. Mm. I think it's important. We try to simplify, to solve, to to get rid of that sense in many different dimensions of our life, to calm ourselves. But there's something very important in being able to deal with that, to be with that, and that's state for a while at least, or in our practice. I get the feeling that reading your work, your intention is to leave people in a place that they can sit with a realization for some time. Mm-hmm. But then when I talk to students about the thesis supervision that you provide, I also get the feeling that that's the way that you teach with them. (laughs) I wanted to ask about audience and who the audience of your work is. Regarding audience, as we were speaking before, I have a troubled relationship with the idea of audience, I guess, because I struggle myself with why make my work public, how make my work public, but fundamentally why. and also because I'm extremely shy and 
I feel for me to show something, it has to have a purpose, and then there's a troubled process that comes with that. A few years ago, I, I was at Manifold Space in Amsterdam, working there and, and developing also an exchange with artist Marcia Fleerfoot in her space. Marcia's space is studio space in Amsterdam, is where she organized this kind of curatorial practice where she invites people to join her in a studio to bring a book into her space and to let that book inhabit her space in some way. I need to simplify, I'm just thinking because there's a whole theoretical framework that I don't think it's interesting to go into now, so maybe I refer to the concept, but I don't, I think, have time to explain it. So I was dealing, engaging with the idea of the diplomacy and the diplomat of Stengers and this idea of misunderstanding of moving beyond the borders of a practice and what that means to me as a designer, as someone working. Part of my process at Manifold Books in trying to enter the space, I realized how difficult it was for me to make that stand, to become public in that way, to enter that space, to show something. What did it mean to show something? And at the time I was reading a a book by José Gil, a Portuguese philosopher, Portugal hoje me desistir, Portugal today, fear of existing. And I started to translate that book for Marcia, (laughs) for us to talk, but also exploring the idea of miscommunication. So what happens when I'm a person dealing with an issue and translating someone's words, and it's a, a man much older than me, very different than me, speaking about something that I'm also relating to while translating. So that process was really interesting for me. Anyway, to make the story short, I really came to see how part of my difficulty in dealing with an audience had to do with me being Portuguese, with me being brought up in a system where the idea of public discussion is a really problematic one. We do not have that culture. With the end of the dictatorship, there wasn't a a movement towards an actually public, open, political discussion of things, of a personal quest, a personal question on dealing with my shyness, my uh, self-confidence also in showing work, with my positioning, so why do I show work, there needs to be a reason why. It took me a while to arrive at the idea that it can be to start the conversation, and I think that would be my answer to you now. Uh, What that audience is, is something that I'm also questioning because it tends to be a very closed circuit when I actually would like it to be a much broader one. So what's the point, for example, of working in public space but then presenting or showing, you know, in conferences that are about artistic research? That's something that I'm struggling with. I want both those kind of responses, I want both those kind of dialogues with peers, but also with people that are actually affected to what I'm working on or asking questions about. So my relationship to an audience is a difficult one and one that I find very hard to describe in applications because I want it to be blurry, because it's easier, but also because when I define it, it becomes less interesting. I don't know. There's a kind of a mix. I haven't really given so much thought to that. In regards to teaching, what I sense is that students need to be sure of something, to feel good and to feel confidence and being able to do a project. But on the other hand, that's not so interesting for a research project. So I try to 
on the one hand disturb that, question that, try to gradually make their process more complex <laughs> mm. by opening questions, asking them to perhaps experiment in a different way, asking them to situate themselves and position themselves in what they're doing and deal with the consequences of that and the implications of that, and then also bringing in a theoretical framework. But I always try to do that in connection to something. So theory for me is never abstract. I just can't think about it in that way. And so that's also how I relate to that. And I try also to bring other peoples to relate to that and to enjoy. So sometimes it's a gradual process because I don't think you can really read something and understand it if you're not really enjoying it or committed to mm. it. I've often had the feeling I need to read this, I need to read this, I need to read this. And then I'm reading it and I'm thinking I need to read it and not that I'm reading it, you know. It's just like my brain I, does not read. It yeah, just thinks I it has to read. And I, and I just can't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so I try to invite them also into those mm. readings um, and that sometimes readings are frustrating but they're worth... Uh, they're worth, you know, getting into someone's language game or universe. It's mm. quite a, a journey to do also, but you need to want to do that. So it's a bit finding that balance. I feel like your answer with lack of definition of what audience is and, and where it sits really is harmonious with the work that you do, though, because it's not like you're saying, I don't want to have an audience because you haven't thought about it. But it's rather that there's more possibility in the lack of definition. And that's kind of what the work is trying to do anyway, to reach these areas of, I keep using the word discomfort, but it's not discomfort, it's sort of, of unease in a way, that's like a playful, joyful unease. Thank you, thank you. It's really nice way of summing it up. I'm going to ask you a little bit about success criteria, because I, I think it's something that's it's really hard to define. And I think success criteria are really hard to define within teaching, but they're also really hard to define within creative practice, particularly if that creative practice is not a creative practice that fits into a, a simple category. But for me, like at this point of my life, success criteria is getting funding. More than actually thinking about a project, I look at postdocs and fellowships every day. Like I just want to get funding to work, mm. you know, to be able to enjoy... I can't even afford a studio, you know, to have my studio space and to, to, to do my work, you know. So the success criteria has changed with, with, with um, the realities. Then that becomes the main thing. And then you think about success criteria in terms of what the funding committee thinks yeah. the success criteria is. And my personal success criteria just go is squeezed and turns, you know, like it's just going through. It's like not important, so, you know. It just it's, it's yeah. between me, but I can talk about that if you like. I don't know. It's yeah. Just, well, uh, I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting perspective, and also something that I completely empathize with. A thing that I tend to find, I do, and I know it's a weakness of my own practice, but because it takes a long time to talk about the kind of work that I make. At my wedding, my dad said, Ollie, nobody has a clue what you do, but we love you. you know, so there's this kind of... <laughs> it's, but each project I, I do, I find requires so much time to frame a bunch of ideas to talk about something. And 
I've always been made to feel that that is a weakness of the work because you can't just go, boom, I make this thing. It's really cool. You'll like it or find mm -hmm. another way in. And for funding applications and things like that, I always just fall back on relying on some sort of institutional name. And for me, the things that are most interesting about the projects are the content. But for the external committees who have to decide on things, it's like, oh, can we just tick off, does this have brand name recognition? Yes, 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 here we go. And and that's not saying that I'm by any means successful with mm -hmm. applications. But, but I think I have a problem also with the word. Like when you often ask students about success criteria, and I'm always, and, and, and the reason why is that I, I do ask them the same question because, of course, when you're structuring a thesis, you go through all the bits and pieces that have to come together to make a coherent project, and you need to know what it's about and what you want with the project. Mm. But I just don't call it success, because success for me has this kind of capitalistic um, connotation that, you, that succeeding is something that's compensated somehow and mm. and it's ridiculous because it's kind of also this old-fashioned notion of success the the, you know, the true artist then the uh, lives outside those kind of notions and it's totally bullshit of course yeah so yeah well, maybe in that case maybe i phrase it wrong the, the thing i'm trying to find out when i ask people about success criteria is really what would make you happy i know i know that this and because i know you and you ask it in a way that students understand perhaps when i ask it they don't get what i'm talking about so you know that's why i never said anything and i because i think it is an important mm -hmm. part of the conversation in those settings and frequently with students you get to a stage with the teaching where you have to ask well, actually, within my role of teaching, I try to have conversations with students about where they want to be in the future. You know, like, what's this going to look like in five years' time for you? What are the, the core things that we want to set up so they can be sustainable and, and you have a mode of practice that can be continued in some way? But quite often you'll find that the thing that they're presenting to you as a member of an institution is something that they think is going to satisfy you and that really what they want to do is go off and work for a graphic design studio or they want to go and do something that's completely different or maybe even they're studying this particular program because it's going to keep their parents happy because it still has the word design and not art or something like that so the reason i always ask about these criteria is basically what would make you happy how would you be satisfied if this mm -hmm. thing succeeded mm -hmm. and yeah I, I agree success is a very sort of uh capitalist way of, of phrasing it but it's almost like the question of when are you going to put that final brush stroke on the painting mm -hmm. when's it going to be you feel like you've done a good job and again good job absolutely comes from capitalist no, 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 no. space mm -hmm. but that's the thing I find the hardest to define it's the thing I find the hardest to define myself mm -hmm. my own work but also with students it can take half an hour of beating around the bush before you find out that actually they have a very specific thing in mind that they don't want to tell you mm -hmm. or often it's so yeah i think that's why at the end of the year uh, there's a relationship that's formed and it's quite a tight one in some aspects yeah. because you gradually got to know the inner the inner corners of someone's uh, mind and how mm. they work now that's uh, that's really nice and they put a lot of trust in us as teachers and I think that's amazing sometimes to see uh, yeah. 
and I respect that very much. No. Yeah, and particularly when you think of <laughs> so many students moving from literally the other side of the world to then spend hours talking to us about something or other. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I should clarify here: there's very few moments that we actually teach together. Yes, we actually. I don't think we ever have taught together. No, I mean we're in panels together all the time for student yeah. assessments and things like that, yeah. and sometimes interviews, but yes. never in sort of a probing into what students are up to, trying in some way to to help shape a project or help resolve something. How do you develop ideas, and who do you work through them with? Mm-hmm. So one thing that happens when you're teaching is less time. So I'm teaching. I have a family. A young daughter, <laughs> so there's less time. So the the notion that I had before of really being into a project and then it developed quite fast. I was trying things out. Now is this kind of slower process. That's frustrating, but also gives some time for ideas to simmer, <laughs> and that's quite nice. I think since also my experience in March's studio was to think. I'm not sure I want to explore my practice, that it can take many forms, but I want there to be conversations, and I know that I'm quite shy. <laughs> so I made the decision to to get out of my comfort zone and, and, and contact people as part of my working process. And that's something that I've been doing. I can, in an initial stage, I have a partner at home that's someone that I really enjoy bouncing ideas a lot with. And he's from a different field, so that's really interesting too. So I have another pool of references, another set of uh, framework that, 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 that disturbs mine, and that's really nice. And then I try to, in the first instance, contact people by email, people that I think might be you know, interested in the same topic or familiar with uh, some ideas. And if they can meet me, point me in the direction of people that could be interesting. So I don't know. I don't, I'm entering into too much detail, but there's my community of friends and people close to me. There's people that I ask uh, and they generously actually offer their time and talk to me because they are interested in the same issues and we meet and we have you know conversations lately on, on, on Zoom. And then research groups. So I'm part of research groups at the Hitfeld, but also research groups that actually grew from me starting a project and bringing together a set of people that then thought, okay, let's continue talking. And so that also happens. That's really nice uh, to to do. And then my colleagues, the people that I work with, uh, the team of teachers actually become people that I really enjoy listening to. Not that I always have the time to talk about my practice, but I do have the time to bring about questions or readings mm. or share um, thoughts. And and then there's a struggle in relation to teaching between reading, as I say, at the Master Institute, it's true that my role is very much of a supervisor, so I'm kind of dealing with students mostly on a one-to-one basis, but at the Hitful, I'm, I'm a theory teacher. <laughs> and And there I prepare classes. The way I prepare classes is really very close to also how I want to work. So I started by thinking that to be a theory teacher, I have to be a theory teacher. That's someone that I'm not, and that was really hard because I'm not a theory teacher in the sense of someone that 
comes to present a text or share knowledge or present an idea very clearly. I'm someone that really enjoys engaging with texts and and so that's what I'm asking students to do. I bring a text and the text is tied to an exercise, to an experiment, and that experiment, that exercise leads to a conversation. So it's a very hands-on way of reading texts and engaging with ideas. And so that's very close to my practice and how I work and something I enjoy a lot. But then, of course, if I'm teaching a first year of fine arts, I need to be aware of different topics, readings, ideas that are interesting to them and not necessarily to me. So I, I struggle sometimes with the lack of time to read what I want to read for my own research because I'm reading what I think is interesting for theirs. And yeah. sometimes actually what I think is interesting for theirs end up becoming part of my research in unexpected ways and it's really yeah. nice. I make connections while teaching that I would never have done if I hadn't worked with those texts but on the other hand I always feel a lack of time I want to be able to read without having to teach what I read to have yeah. that a blank space around my relation with a book or with an idea and that there's space for anything to form and that I tend to not have so much because I'm teaching so I guess conversation also enters my practice my creative practice in that way through teaching yeah. um, because then a lot of people are <laughs> bringing me their perspectives and it's really interesting and really nice and I learn a lot yeah I, I think it's one of those things that for me has taken a long time to realize that with teaching it's it's okay not to have all the answers oh completely and it's quite interesting, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a common conception with students, particularly depending on different educational backgrounds. There are some methods of teaching that students will have been exposed to before they come to us, where they expect the tutors to know absolutely everything, probably like a very technical way. And there are other methods of teaching which I've only experienced secondhand, where the students treat you as some sort of a master who they're supposed to do everything you say as opposed to the reality of the situation that, that we find ourselves in where there are a series of dialogues that students have with tutors and it's their responsibility to pick the path through those things that sort of works the best. But for me, sometimes the best teaching happens when you're exploring an idea with a student that you don't fully know yourself because you can discover things together and find out a lot about the way that somebody thinks through encountering something at a very similar time to them. I think also it's just, in a way, a bit more exciting. And that's mm -hmm. not me saying, oh, I, I always just make it up as I go along. I don't mm -hmm. know what's going no. on. But the, the nature of the type of teaching that we do is such that there isn't a set subject that you have to be studying. Students can bring anything to us, and we have to react to it. And sometimes when those things take you in an unexpected direction, you find that you're really interested in something that you never, <laughs> never found before. I realize this is me talking to you, so I don't want to no, no, use up really too much nice. of the time. But the, the thing you were saying before about having a family and that shaping a lot of the way that the, your practice actually works, I also find that I also have a family and a partner and all of the responsibilities that go alongside those things. And my time, my studio practice, from being a few years ago, I would have said, I'm doing it six, if not seven days a week. 
and I can work at any time and my peak hours for working are the evening. Now everything I do with studio practice has had to shift to very specific times of the day and they have to start at the time they start and they have to finish at the time they finish and quite often they're interrupted by a child being ill and being sent home from daycare or something like that. The, The thing that always has to give is your individual studio practice for me at least and a lot of that is to do with the accountability where the only person I'm accountable to in my own studio practice is myself whereas it's a lot easier for me to shift that burden when it comes to teaching because there's somebody who I have to say actually I can't do this right now or there's a bunch of interested parties yeah there's something that for me has changed in the last few years in the amount of attention that I can pay to things now my time is so much more fragmented I never truly get time to immerse myself in something Mm -hmm. I really relate to that and while I was working on my PhD there were deadlines and I had one child and I worked nights and weekends and our life as between us as partners was really fractured between your time my time we were both working at the PhD with a small child I was so tired (laughs) And with two children, it's just not possible. I just Mm. can't handle working nights and working weekends. I physically can't handle that. So it's really strange that having time to work became like my free time, a luxury. Yeah. (laughs) And there's actually (laughs) not a lot of it available because, yeah, you described it very well. And and I, I still do commit to teaching and to preparing because I guess because as thesis supervisor, I do need to read and I feel a big responsibility in my role. But then I'm waking up at four o'clock in the morning sometimes and that's when I'm working. And then I have my day of teaching and then I'm totally tired. And by the end, when I have my days for studio practice, I'm still dealing with emails and all the administration that comes with teaching. And it's frustrating. I feel that I need a lot of energy to keep motivated above anything else. It's really nice also because it made me realize how passionate I actually am about my projects. I cannot mm-hmm. give them up. <laughs> and and I really am committed to them. So there's this kind of engagement with my work that I didn't have before because I realize how precious it is for me and how much I need it also to feel me, to feel like Barbara. Mm-hmm. But then it's hard. You have to be very patient. Things come up very slowly. And I feel very frustrated that really important moments for me for exchange or for showing work or shaping your conversation, I don't have any time to prepare. I just do them last minute. And that I feel it's a pity because I'm working towards something and then I don't have time to care for it like I would have liked to if I could. But I also think it's a temporary situation and hopefully it changes. But I've been through that before, that I was teaching for a few years and then I stopped teaching. And the reason why I stopped teaching is that I thought I can't teach anymore. I have nothing else to give. If I do not invest in myself, I can't. I have nothing to share. I'm I'm here. I don't want to be a parrot. I have Mm. to be a person here, present, busy, occupied with something living otherwise you know what am I doing here so it's a balance that I think is really necessary to keep and I I do think uh, the teaching positions should include time for teachers also if they are teaching research 
to have some time for research. I couldn't agree more. And I also think that the attitude you've expressed is probably quite common with people who have a creative practice of whatever kind and also teach. And that's part of the reason that I started this interview series mm -hmm. was that I find myself teaching and trying to maintain a creative practice. And there's a lot of friction between those two things, but they do nourish each other in a way. Mm -hmm. And I find if I do too much teaching, it completely zaps my energy. Mm. But I, I love it as well. I love those conversations. I love the dialogue. I love the conversation with tutors. I love the conversation with students. I love trying to work out how we nurture something that sort yeah. of like is a longer scale project than yeah. just a, a normal project that I would do. Yeah, I really, I like teaching and I missed it uh, in the years that I wasn't teaching immensely and I think it's also about being part of a bigger project I really like mm. I feel like I'm working towards making things better making the world mm. better somehow I'm leaving something behind contributing to a cause and I've been lucky to work in really nice groups of people where where that makes sense <laughs> it's not only it's, I don't feel alone in that and mm. in where I'm teaching at the moment yeah, yeah. can I ask a uh, question about the the practice of practice is there anything that you do if you find yourself in one of those stages where you have a limited amount of time that would definitely spark your brain up or get you in the mood for making something thinking about something are there any rituals or methods that you have for it changes yeah well for example with march's space i was rubbing her wall <laughs> her studio space has a really high wall I don't know how many meters but really high I don't know how many meters <laughs> I should actually I spend so much time with it but part of me relating to her space and feeling that I needed to find a way while This I was translating was picking up a paper and graffiti and I created a series of hundreds uh, of rubbings I rubbed the whole wall so I stayed in a level of proximity with that wall with the space had to physically encounter the space somehow meet I think it was an embodied way of dealing with that invitation um, that's what I did there and it was really fruitful for me to actually be present in that way looking at it from there in This other instances it's walking I walk a lot sketching having too much coffee and sketching I think that's also like putting things in diagrams and creating some kind of not really mood boards, but I need to put together images, texts, words, and map them out, and then shuffle them, and then reshuffle them. I think that's a process that I need to do. How do you do that? Is, do you have sketchbooks that you keep, or is yeah, it? Yeah, um... I get. I, I feel walls. I also sometimes need to feel things. It's a very like really like my body. It's it's on different levels. I think on the one hand, it's dealing with ideas and and sources and influences and trying to track actually what I'm interested in and on the other hand it's my body that needs to go for a walk or mm. touch a material or deal with something also. When you say walking <laughs> do you walk to specific places every time or is it just the act of walking that helps the mind to think? Uh, do you take a sketchbook with you or? No. I just walk and I don't think it really matters where I go because I'm not really looking around. Sometimes I'm smelling or it's more about feeling the fresh air and the environment because my head's somewhere else. My head's 
sometimes I can't remember where I was. You know, it's a kind of walking that you're really distracted. I think that happens quite often. And I, I just like the pace, the exercise. Of mm. course, nature is better than walking in the middle of a... a yeah, an uh, industrial estate. I guess I won't go to the center <laughs> yeah. of Amsterdam. If I'm in Amsterdam, I go to the park. Yeah. It feels much better. But when I'm walking, I, I don't even think about picking up a pen. If I'm talking to students and I don't have a pen in my hand, I can't accompany people's work. It's like I need, I write, mm. I, I sketch, I, I visualize, I'm, even if it's just a diagram, like I, I need that. When I was doing this, for example, with my PhD, where ideas were on a level of complexity that I would forget them, I would record. I would just pick up my phone and record what I had thought that I didn't forget or lose that idea or mm. you know sometimes I just solve the chapter and I just make the uh, quick note but using voice and mm. it's really funny it's only when I'm walking and this act of running away from something just moving my body I'm not running away I don't know what I'm doing but it's just I'm in my head and otherwise I do use always a pen and paper but also when I'm really writing I have this capacity for concentrating on something for hours mm. I forget to eat and, and sometimes I have to force myself to actually get out of the house and walk because now I know that I'm going to approach the work in a, in, a, in a way that's much more fruitful and interesting. Yeah. Then I keep working on it. But, but it's really like I have to pull myself out of the work then. Mm. This happens much less lately because I haven't had that time you know, for this kind of commitment. And when I do have, then I really don't go for a walk. So I'm talking mm. about a few years ago when I was you know, working in that way. I needed to get out of the work, and I sometimes didn't. And I learned to do that. In having less time for a project, there's more time for something else around the project that I can't quite define. But it matures also in a different way. But then also it can't be like that because I think you need to work. You know, that's what we keep telling our students actually not to yeah. do, to think about things because thinking about something and imagine a situation is very different than then actually engaging with it. Just thinking about what you said, I think there's a nice bridge to the same question but about teaching. Are there any exercises that you come back to again and again that you love to run through with students that get them through a certain thing? No, I tend to always change something. I, but I guess what's behind the exercise is very much similar. I, I go about it in different ways because I like to try different things out. I guess every year I don't like so much to repeat exercises. Maybe I can give an example of the the exercise that I just am trying out now with students at the Hitfeld at the start of the year. I I don't I don't know. Yeah, I'm just thinking if it's the most representative one. <clears throat> Good. I guess I start the year always trying to find a way for students to feel at ease and realize that the class is a, a space for questions and for unsettling <laughs> ideas rather than following ideas. And and they, I do that in different ways depending on who I'm teaching or what the group is like. This year I'm asking students at the Hitfeld Academy to write an opening line to their work this year. And that's been a really interesting process, for me at least, and I'm still in it. The first text we read together was a how-to text, like how to write an opening line. I really enjoyed that, to start in that way. 
and around the idea of setting up a plot and creating a narrative for the year. We're identifying characters, themes, questions. We talked a lot about what can a work process be and how do we tell a story, but also we were questioning thinking. They really had to think about their practice and what they do and what they wanted to do. So that's what I'm working with them on. And I'm bringing in a text, we're reading a text by uh, Ursula Le Guin called The Career Bag of Theory, or fiction. It's a beautiful text where Ursula Le Guin is talking about how our stories are, um, are based around the idea of a hero and about an act of action. So the idea that history has been told around the idea of I'm missing the, the sphere you know, of, of the hunter. That, that's kind of the image that's kind of pervading our minds. And that in reality, people, we were as humans, were eating what came from the ground. <laughs> and that we could also retell history from the point of view as the carrier bag as a diverse tool that allowed people to bring more than one or two seeds back home to feed the community. But then what's the interest of the carrier back as a story? You know, it's much more interesting to think about the hunter coming and this happened. She's questioning that. What about if we don't tell stories in that way and if we tell stories looking at the idea of a carrier bag where there's lots of different objects that can form many different attachments and where there's not one hero or one storyline but perhaps many storylines. So this idea also to talk with students about also theory and how you build up ideas in relation to that. So this idea that maybe we don't have to have a hero or an action mm but you can have this more tentative, I guess, associative way of pulling threads together and building up a story. Students are working on each other's opening lines, and I'm also introducing a bit this idea of the speculative, like we're speculating, speculating about something that still is going to happen, and that I'm going to return to later in the year. So this is an example of how I'm thinking of an exercise, like where I am now, uh, uh, this moment at the Hitfeld that's meant as an introduction. They get to know me, I get to know their practices, but there's also a process of questioning and of thinking about the text that we're going to read in a certain way. So I'm also establishing a way of thinking and working about, around texts with this. Let's see how it goes. As a writing exercise, they also are writing in my class from the start, and they can write an opening line from the point of view, of course, I'm, we're looking at opening lines and, and discussing this, but they can write an opening line from the point of view of the character of the question or the theme, and then combinations, like they can ask questions also to the character from the perspective of the theme. So the idea is also to introduce this I idea of looking at work from different entry points and how those also change the story and that they're sharing the opening lines and that they're sharing what they're thinking that they want to do with other students I think is also important that they get to meet each other in that way and start to analyze a bit okay I'm not just doing I'm also there's some there's a theme maybe or a question or my character can be a material <laughs> um, and if it's a material then 
what's it like as a character, you know, like how do I represent that character and how does it connect to a question? So it's these kind of uh, issues are important. But also at the end of the year, they are going to end the year writing about their practice. It's the, And so I think it's really nice for us to return to the, this opening question mm. at the end of the year. That's the idea. And to then work from there. That's really nice. I, I love the idea that you're taking all of the critical elements of the project, the subject matter or the methods or any of the things that we normally talk about in these very abstract terms and giving them the characterization of material. The other teaching exercise I wanted to ask you about was one that you've described to me before and really stuck in my mind. And <laughs> this was the one where you asked students to think about brushing their teeth when they're brushing their ah, teeth. Yeah. So that's an exercise that I gave as an introductory exercise two years ago for the first time. And I'm actually changing it this year. I'm not, I'm connecting it to other exercises and it's no, no longer going to be an introductory exercise. But I'm reading with students uh, Kathy Hacker's text, Against Ordinary Language, The Language of the Body. And I think it's such an interesting text because Kathy Hacker was a prolific writer, teller of stories, reader, performer, someone that's not really lost for words, I guess. So my idea of her starts to talk about her experience of bodybuilding in this text and realizes that when she tries to write about bodybuilding and share that experience, she fails to find the words. And so she starts to ask herself, why does this happen? I don't have time to explain, I think, the whole text, but just this idea of how we're not used to actually engage and listen to the language of the body. We're so used to the discursive, we're so used to explaining <laughs> and to ideas that we are not used to engage with the bodily dimensions of what we do and what kind of language does that take and how it defies, as Kathy Hacker says, ordinary language and asks for something else. Of course, she's um, really simplifying her text. And I think in reading her text, that's interesting for several reasons, I find that there's something about this difficulty, this fissure, this discrepancy that students face when they have to write and do, and write about what they do. I think my idea actually is to explore how writing about something changes how you do something also. So I'm asking them to choose a practice, something that they do every day in their life, and students have chosen opening and closing a door, going up, climbing upstairs, or washing their teeth, and then to return to that practice daily and to write about it after performing that practice. And it's really interesting because, of course, when you write about washing your teeth, you start also washing your teeth in a different way. And so for me, it's a really interesting way of starting to to disturb the separation that exists in students' mind, that writing is one thing and practice is another. <laughs> and, and actually see that they inform each other and that they open questions for each other and, and that, that it's interesting to keep them together um, as practices. Briefly, that's the, the idea. Sometimes I'm afraid that I'm simplifying. So I'm using a text that's quite you know, complex and has other layers and many other 
ideas and issues involved and then using it really like using it <laughs> is the word for something very specific to work with students and I'm very afraid of doing that also so I'm a bit hesitant also it's a really nice exercise but you know it, it, I'm also putting Kathy Acker in this role where she's an excuse for something that the students are going to do but on the other hand they get to meet her and she's such a wonderful person and I do talk about the text so I'm, yeah. I'm always yeah, a bit divided about that and wonder what she would be thinking about that she uh, Kathy Acker another <laughs> yeah text that I engage with yeah. Would be nice to know, actually. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things that you, um, as as a writer or as somebody who's producing something, you can't always control the context in which it's mm-hmm. experienced. Mm-hmm. And for people who do end up trying to take control of that environment too much, it sort of reminds me of those old psychology professors who are adamantly rigorously defending their position (laughs) for something they did in the 70s and not realizing that this stubbornness about what they've created is really inhibiting to an extent Mm -hmm. i don't know if i phrase that in a way that's intelligible Mm -hmm. or even makes any sense at all but when you've made something i'm not saying you have to give up ownership of it but other people are free to interpret it how they like. Mm-hmm. But as a teacher, I think I need to respect the material, and that's all, you know. That's yeah. something I'm, yeah, I'm not sure about sometimes. Because I do this with several texts. <laughs> Some of them are quite complex. Barbara, it's been so lovely to spend this time with you. It's been <laughs> so nice to have a conversation face-to-face after, what, like nearly two years of just meeting each other online and it's been nice to have this conversation about your work in a way that enables the framing of teaching but also doesn't just rely on it (laughs) so yeah thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me thank you so much for having me it's really nice to to talk and i also feel like i really want to talk more and also to know more about you now and um, yeah, and it's really nice to meet again. So thanks. It's really nice yeah. to have this time also to reflect. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, as you you were saying earlier about the relationship with colleagues as being something that is creatively inspiring, and I I definitely feel that as well. Part of the reason I teach is because I find those the conversations with students and the conversations with co-teachers really nourishing. Mm. If people are interested in your work. I'll try to put links to everything we've talked about mm-hmm. on the, the show notes and on the website so that there's a resource there. If people want to follow your work or see you do something, what's the best way for them to, to follow? What's <laughs> well, going I have on? a website that I haven't updated at the moment since 2018. I'm, I'm thinking about it and I need to do that. So I think that's the best way. And, and then I guess if you search for my name, Online, you'll see recent publications or work, but I update them in academia, a point I do, and the research kit also, I have to do that also now. So I've been kind of postponing taking care of my online presence, but yeah. I'm doing that soon. As I said to you earlier, I don't trust anybody whose website is completely <laughs> up to date. But some material you'll find already on my website. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold the Space. If any of the things we've discussed are of interest, please do take a look through the links in the show notes and its website at www.holdthespace.art. I've tried to link to as many of the projects and people as possible. Of course, I probably have missed a couple. Many thanks to my guest, Barbara Nevis Alves, for generously donating her time to this episode. As you know, this is quite a new podcast, and I'm still working out the best way to make the format work. If you have any comments or suggestions, please do send me a note. I'd love to hear feedback on this. There are details in the show notes and on the show website, again at www.holdthespace.art. This podcast is made possible by the Situated Art and Design Research Group at Karat, the Centre for Applied Research in Art, Design and Technology. Each episode is recorded, edited and mixed by me, Oli Palmer. For more information, including full transcripts for each episode, links to relevant work or resources, please visit the podcast website at www.holdthespace.art or click the link in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back with you again soon.